From Troy Public Radio and Troy University in partnership with the Alabama World Affairs Council, this is Speaking Globally, and I'm Walter Gavan. Welcome back to Speaking Globally, where we look at the history, politics, and culture of different regions and countries around the world and talk with people who can provide context and insight into some of the most important global issues we face. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's months-long efforts to convince the U.S. and NATO to supply Ukraine with Western fighter jets may have finally paid off. Earlier this month, President Biden announced that the U.S. will allow its allies to send F-16s to Ukraine and participate in F-16 training programs. Officials said it's still not clear if the U.S. will simply allow other nations to send F-16s to Ukraine or if the U.S. will also send some. The announcement marked a striking reversal for the Biden administration, which had previously maintained that Ukraine did not need advanced fighter jets such as the F-16. They're going to be in a situation where you're going to have the Russians being able to stand off at a greater distance. Now, those fighter jets, those F-16s, make a big difference. So it's a different need, just like the tanks weren't needed in the beginning, but they're needed now. That's the nature of the change. One person with a great deal of expertise on the subject is retired Lieutenant General David Deptula. General Deptula is one of the world's foremost experts on military aerospace issues. Featured in a new 2023 book, Air Power Pioneers, from Billy Mitchell to Dave Deptula, he was the principal attack planner for the Desert Storm Air Campaign, commander of no-fly zone operations over Iraq, and he orchestrated air operations over Afghanistan in 2001. In 2005, he was the Joint Force Air Component Commander for the South Asia Tsunami Relief Effort, and in 2006 was the Standing Warfighting Air Commander for all of Pacific Command. He has twice been a combined Joint Task Force Commander, served on two congressional commissions outlining America's future defense, and was the first Air Force Chief of Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, where he transformed America's drone enterprise. He has flown more than 3,000 flying hours, 400 of which were in combat, to include multiple operational fighter command assignments in the F-15. General Deptula is currently the Dean, Mitchell Institute of Aerospace Studies, and a senior military scholar at the U.S. Air Force Academy, as well as a prolific writer and commentator on military issues. On a personal note, I should add that I have had the honor to fly and serve with General Deptula during several assignments in the Air Force. General Deptula, once again, it's a pleasure to have you with us uh, as we discuss uh, Ukraine, the war there, and particularly the air power dimension uh, of this conflict. Well, it's great to be on, uh, Waldo, and really much appreciate the opportunity to share some of my perspectives with you and your audience. Well, let's get right into it, sir. And I know that temptation is always to jump in and let's fly the airplanes let's let's use the air power but the first question we are taught to ask as military leaders before we get to that point 
is what kind of war is this? And so let me ask you that and what you see as the characteristics that define this war and the factors that give it significance. Well, it's a great question. It's a great place to start, too. This is a war of aggression that's been waged by Russia in a total war of survival for Ukraine. At the strategic and operational level, this has clearly become a lengthy war of attrition. And I think one of the things that is becoming glaringly obvious is that without either side achieving air superiority, this war has devolved into an artillery slugfest that resembles World War One more than the quick coalition victory that occurred during the first Gulf War in uh, and over Iraq. Um, we saw there that proper employment of forces, particularly air power, was quickly able to bring an aggressor to halt and then reverse their aggression very rapidly. But without that element, it's like a nightmare reverting back to trench warfare. I mean, I've read articles where the Russians have a trench digging machine and they've dug trenches all over the forward edge of the battle area. And they're just feeding people into the fight like a meat grinder. And, and that's why I and others understand that air power is the one asymmetric advantage that can break this stalemate and fundamentally give Ukraine a decisive advantage over the Russians. Now, this is one of those things that we hadn't anticipated. We thought we'd seen the end of this kind of brutal aggression that was perpetrated by Japan and Germany during World War II with evil leaders like Hitler and Stalin. But it looks like Putin has stepped up to replace them, at least perhaps not in body, but in spirit. And that's very unfortunate. And his aggression needs to be halted. We will get to the World War One analogies, but I have to say right now that I was also struck early on by the similarity. Here we are a century removed from that carnage, and yet it it's being replicated uh, in the kind of war that we're seeing there. And of course, what was the thing that emerged in World War One? but air power to deal with that and to get us out of the trenches and, uh, and, and above. But before we follow up on that, yeah, I, I really think the important point you made there is that this is an existential war for Ukraine. I mean, and that is the core security interest that has to drive everything for them. You know, it is on the line for them, their very existence as a country. But as we look at this in the context of Europe, what do you think the significance of this war is to NATO and then to the United States as the uh, really the most powerful member of NATO? I think it is pretty stark. A Russian victory in Ukraine would be disastrous, not only for European nations, but for global security writ large. We've had a 75-plus year taboo since World War II that national borders can't be redrawn or shouldn't be redrawn using military force and raw aggression alone. So failure to defend Ukraine would send a disastrous signal to Chinese President Xi Jinping 
that aggressors can ultimately win if they can outlast the U.S. and his allies. And the implications from not just a humanitarian perspective, and I didn't even mention the atrocities and the crimes against humanity that are being conducted by Putin and his military forces, but from an economic perspective, a humanitarian perspective, the whole premise of being able to operate inside sovereign borders would be challenged. And I think the European nations understand that, that Putin's ambitions don't stop with Ukraine. And it's very difficult to put a Western mindset into an authoritarian like uh, Putin's mind. Uh, But he has visions for a much greater reconstitution of czarist empires and reestablishing the Soviet mindset. Uh, And so it is extraordinarily important to stop him in his tracks and reverse his aggression. It's been interesting to watch how NATO has actually been strengthened and re-energized by this, actually the opposite of what uh, Putin intended. One of our goals, obviously, in the United States has been to see NATO re-energized. So that's that's been great. What other goals should the United States have as it approaches this war? Well, at a grand strategic level, Putin's actions have resulted in exactly opposite of what he wanted to accomplish, and that's to drive a wedge in, in, in NATO. Instead of driving a wedge, he unified NATO perspectives, and instead of reducing or putting a limit on the number of nations, he solidified the people and the nations in the region such that Sweden is paramount of neutrality, and then Finland, both um, have applied. Finland's now a member. Sweden's soon to follow. And then look at the impact that his actions have had on Switzerland. So who have basically come out and put aside 200 years of neutrality and come out opposing Putin. So there are a lot of geopolitical outcomes that are occurring as a result of his aggression. When you talk about What should be some of our additional goals? Other than those from a political perspective, one of the stated goals of the current administration is that they'll support Ukraine for however long the conflict lasts and provide them with the security assistance and assurances necessary so that whenever whatever peace or stalemate that Ukraine eventually accepts is one that is both stable and provides to both Russia and any other aggressive powers out there that are watching, like China, that aggression simply does not pay. But let me caveat that by saying that we're in it as long as we need to is also not a strategy, because the problem is Russia's got a population of 144 million. Ukraine's got a population of about 42 million. And numbers count. So we, we can't just rest on our political statements that, well, we'll be there as long as it takes, because the Russians, from a manpower and a material perspective, will outlast the Ukrainians, period, dot. So what we need to do is provide weapons and support that make a difference, that can have a strategic impact, and that can overcome some of these simply quantitative advantages that the Russians have. It's not just about 
hanging around and supporting Ukraine as long as it takes. We've got to take action that imposes uh, an advantage to the Ukrainians that otherwise not provided would end up in a long, dragged-out stalemate. Absolutely. I've discussed this before is a concept of depth. Russia has always had that geographic depth, the depth of numbers, the depth of resources and time that played to its advantage even when it has performed disastrously on the battlefield as it did in the early stages of uh, World War II. Yeah, and, and don't forget, Putin doesn't care about his people. He will just throw more and more personnel into the fight and treat them as simply cannon fodder. And that's not the case with the Ukrainians. No, and we've got, to the extent we can, we have to provide that depth that they don't have naturally. Where someone like you really comes in, and I'm interested in getting into this, because you mentioned strategy. What is a strategy and what isn't a strategy? We've talked a little bit about the goals, which are the ends, the the naturally. Let's get into a little bit more into the ways which is always the hard part, I think, of, of uh, how exactly the ways result in uh, achieving the ends uh, desired here. You know, you're an experienced air power strategist and commander. As you're looking at this, you know, what kind of strategy should we have and how, what should air power's role in that strategy for Ukraine be? Right up front, what I'll tell you is air power provides an asymmetric advantage the right kind of air power. In several ways, what's happened in Ukraine is because of Russian incompetence, poor training, poor leadership, material, it's not all that it's cracked up to be, the Russian Air Force has not performed as expected. Uh, At the same time, Ukraine's fortitude to use their air forces in an optimal way, fashion, that possible, Um, has allowed them also uh, to deny and degrade the Russians' effort in the air. Essentially, because of the Ukrainian materiel weakness, what we've seen is neither side has been able to achieve air superiority. So we've been left with a situation of what some people are calling mutual air denial, where a lot of air effects are primarily coming from short frenetic bursts of activity uh, and inaccurate munitions expenditures at long range. The best example of this is the kinds of actions we've seen with both sides employing their attack aircraft. And if you're not familiar with that, pilots will essentially pitch up and lob unguided rockets and weapons at distance with relatively low accuracy and then immediately speed back down to the to the dirt and go back into their respective safe territories. It really goes to show just how contested the airspace is, both from the air and the ground, that pods on both sides are unable to get within direct line of sight of their targets. What can make a difference is replacing the, over time, it's not just going to be happening with a snap of the fingers, uh, but providing the Ukrainians with modern aircraft that will allow them to achieve air superiority, which doesn't mean, you know, complete air supremacy. Let me get into some definitions. Air superiority simply means that one can achieve dominance and operate in a particular location 
for a particular period of time. You know, what we saw over Iraq and Afghanistan is air supremacy, where the aircraft were unchallenged and could operate freely all the time. That's certainly not the case with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. But providing them aircraft, um, we can talk about types later on, but multi-role fighters like the F-16 or the variety of others would give the Ukrainians the means to actually make a difference and break this stalemate. Now, I'm glad you mentioned air superiority because I think that that term gets thrown around a lot and people don't understand exactly what it means. It's, as you said, that it's really the ability to do what you want through the air in a particular place for a particular amount of time. It doesn't mean you don't take losses, doesn't mean you're not shot at, but but they can't stop you from doing what you want. And ultimately, having that, an important part of that too, as you and I have discussed before, is the freedom of action that it gives you on the ground when you've got that. You don't have to worry about the air attack so much. If you're deploying ground forces, you can count on the the support of aircraft, whether they be fixed wing, rotary wing, or whatever operating in your airspace. And that's critical. We certainly have gotten used to that in the United States as kind of the, the American way of war. It's interesting to watch from afar here and to think, gosh, I I would hate to be operating in that environment on the ground without that sort of air superiority or, as in the case of the United States in Iraq and Afghanistan, air supremacy. If there was one sentence to kind of capture what air superiority does for you, it provides freedom from attack and freedom to attack. You know, I was struck at the beginning of this war by, I would say, the lack of an air superiority campaign by the Russian forces, as you know, we certainly would have expected had we been employing. And it certainly showed in the footage that we saw of the number of aircraft that they lost in the early stages. Were you surprised by that? I'll be honest, to a degree, yes. But then in thinking through the conditions that occurred, One of the things that folks in the West tend to do, Waldo, is mirror image. And so they're going, heck, why why did the Russians do this? Why didn't they do that? Well, because we're thinking about it in the context of how we, as Western practicers of uh, strategy, operations, and tactics, would do something. But in thinking back on this, one recognizes that Russian air doctrine is completely different than Western air doctrine. If you look back at their history, they've rarely, if ever, used air power in a strategic sense. They've always tied it to the ground forces. They're extraordinarily control-focused. So they never gave their individual airmen the initiative that's required to capitalize on a particular situation as it occurs. You know, you and I grew up in an era where we understood how Russia trained. Their pilots simply reacted to what the ground control controllers were telling them what to do. Now, that evolved after the collapse of the Berlin Wall for a bit, uh, but then their training never really resulted in replicating the kinds of high-intensity conflict that we now see evolving in Ukraine. And then when you look at the Russian Air Force leadership, 
folks in the Russian military aren't promoted on the basis of competency. They're promoted on the basis of payback. Corruption is rampant. And so you really do not have good leadership in Russia's Air Force. And then while we always tend to look at their equipment as the best, it turns out that's not necessarily the case. I mean, we saw an example of that recently where Russia dropped a penetrating munition off of one of their advanced, their supposed advanced fighters over a Russian city. They simply don't know how to best exploit air power. And even if they did, they don't train to do it. And they suffer from grossly negligent leadership. So in retrospect, I guess I'm not surprised, but that's the situation where we find ourselves in. And that's a huge advantage for the Ukrainians because they, unlike the Russians, have benefited from a partnership with the U.S. Air Force for over two decades now. They've had a partnership with an air superiority unit out of the California Air National Guard. And that training and insight has provided them a degree of understanding of how initiative can provide a big advantage, even while handicapped with inferior uh, aircraft. And we've seen that unfold on uh, the Ukraine side. But even in this highly disadvantaged situation, they've managed to keep the Russians at bay. The, the Ukrainians have been unable uh, to achieve air superiority, and that's still a factor. So that's why we continue to see the effects of Russian air power on the Ukrainian population. Well, that has to be the frustrating and somewhat puzzling, frankly, aspect to this is I see the provision of advanced air fighter aircraft to the Ukrainian Air Force as something that we should have done early on. Once we knew that Ukraine was not going, that they were able to resist the initial waves, my feeling is that we should have had Ukrainian pilots in training. We should have been putting the aircraft, getting them ready to go to Ukraine. And then that way, as we know, with the long lead times for training and the, the like, uh, whether it's maintenance or whether it's pilots, this kind of uh, air power could be having an effect on the battlefield. I've heard you say some similar things, but why don't you expand on what you think is necessary there? Here's the deal, and this is the heart of our discussion today. Western combat air power could fundamentally alter the calculus in this fight by providing Ukraine with capable Western aircraft, both manned and unmanned, the West can increase Ukraine's probability of success in reversing Russia's aggression. Look, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the Russian military is optimized to slug it out on the ground. And by fighting from the air, you can, Ukraine can turn that advantage around. Empowering Ukraine to target Russian logistics lines, supply depots, artillery, missile batteries, command and control centers, as well as fielded forces, would render the Russians far more vulnerable than they are today or will be tomorrow without such assistance. So with the right aircraft, Russian air defense missile systems would be vulnerable to attack, including those inside Russia, by the way. And that wouldn't widen the war. It would shorten it. Why in God's name would anyone give sanctuary to the Russians and say, okay, you know, you're the aggressors, but as long as you operate from inside your boundaries, you know, we're not going to attack you there. Oh, but come on over and, you know, beat the crap out of us. 
That is insane. And we should have learned that lesson in our operations in limiting our actions in uh, Korea uh, as well as Vietnam. Now, yeah, I get it. You don't want them attacking cities. You don't want them attacking strategic sites. But any Russian military conventional system that's headed toward Ukraine should be fair game. Any other command and control systems that are having an effect inside Ukraine should be fair game. Any missile systems should be fair game. Ukraine's asked for air power since the beginning of this fight. I think it's very important to recognize that. If Ukraine had been provided with modern Western air power earlier in the war, not only would the battle lines be far more favorable today, but associated air power training programs would be in full swing in producing credible pilots and maintainers in, in volume. Modern air power provides the means to inject significant benefits over ground-based fires and has the potential to give Ukraine a distinct advantage over the Russians. If there was ever an example since World War II of a nation fighting against all odds for the freedoms that our own nation regards as fundamental, it's the people of Ukraine. And so we need to support them to the greatest degree possible, and that means giving them the advantage that can break Putin's Russian army, modern Western air power. There are lots of excess F-16s that are readily available from the U.S. and other NATO countries. Over 4,000 have been built. You've got established contractors out there who can provide contract logistics support. There are a whole host of European countries that are trying to get rid of their F-16s as they transition their forces to the F-35. In the United States, in 2022, we retired 48 F-15Cs and 47 F-16s, not to mention the ones that are in flyable storage. These are aircraft that are excess to U.S. Air Force needs and that could rapidly tilt the balance of power in Ukraine's favor. As we look at this war continuing, how, how did you really think it might end? You know, there are a couple options. The war could end relatively soon with a Ukrainian victory if, in fact, we provide them with weapons that make a difference. And when I say soon, I'm talking within a year or so. Or it could drag on into a conflict where, as I mentioned earlier, Russia has the advantage due to its sheer size and keeps on providing men and materiel to the front. The Ukrainians could capitalize on the well-postulated uh, spring-summer offensive, and what that does may very well define the remainder of the conflict. If the Ukrainians can mount a successful offense, we might see significant gains in the east and the south, and if we see that, their successful galvanized Western support and may force the conditions for a resolution of the conflict on favorable terms to the Ukrainians. But alternatively, a failed offensive or gains by Russian forces will embolden Putin and work to grind down Western support. You know, as I talked about, neither time or manpower is on Ukraine's side, and they simply cannot win a war of attrition against its larger foe. Putin will win that fight, regardless of how incompetent his military leadership, because that's just a simple matter of math. And that's why I think it's so important 
to bring modern air power into this fight. Let's say that this war does end and it ends on favorable terms uh, for Ukraine, that they are able to achieve at least some of their objectives that they've outlined. Should NATO consider letting Ukraine join the alliance at that point? It seems like there's been some discussion of that. Absolutely. When the war's over, Ukraine has more than sufficiently demonstrated how much it can contribute to the alliance. Looking past the obvious, like the fact that they're currently fighting and dying on the front line for democracy, the Ukrainian armed forces have shown the ways they can integrate into the NATO security structure. They've demonstrated their trainability and their ability to integrate NATO and Warsaw Pact standard equipment into a cohesive whole. No other country on the planet will have their institutional knowledge and experience of high-intensity modern warfare. So they would be an extraordinarily valuable NATO ally in the future. And frankly, they should have been admitted a long time ago. Thank you, General Deptula, for those uh, profound insights into this and uh, for being with us. Uh, Best of luck to you as you go forward. Thanks very much. My guest today has been retired Lieutenant General David Deptula. He is one of the world's foremost experts on military aerospace issues and is featured in the 2023 book, Air Power Pioneers, from Billy Mitchell to Dave Deptula. Our podcast is recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio on the Troy University campus and is produced and edited by Austin Toy with help from Kyle Gassett. I'm Walter Gavan, and I look forward to talking with you again soon on Speaking Globally. Speaking Globally.